Amen. Amen, family. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as Christ for Christ's sake, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We thank you, Father, for the, the depth and the completeness of the forgiveness that you have extended to us, the kindness, the generosity, the compassion, the love, the mercy, the grace, Lord. May we be not only holders of those things, but bearers of those things too, that we too might impact somebody's life with the attributes of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege to serve you, and I do pray, Lord, you would teach us and speak to us by your word and through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Family, we're continuing on in Acts chapter 20, and today we're studying verses 29 through 31. And this is part one of a two-part message entitled, Be Careful Who You Listen To. And I think that's very, very important for us these days, isn't it? We need to be very, very careful. And here's what what Paul the Apostle said in verses 29 through 31. He said this, For I know this, that after my departing, remember he was about to leave the city of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus where he ministered for three years. He's saying goodbye to the elders. For this... I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them or themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So here, here we are in Paul's farewell address. To the elders, he's include, he includes a warning prefaced with these words, take heed, we studied this last week, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. He said, take heed. Hold the mind toward. toward. Keep in mind the things that, that I've spoken shared with you, and I want you to apply this to your very lives. He tells the elders that very soon they would be on their own, and what they can expect as they step into new positions of added responsibility. They, have, they no longer will have Paul to rely upon, and, and that's a good thing, because the dependence then and therefore must be on the Holy Spirit of God to lead them and to teach them and to help them. And in terms of the warnings he gave, among other things, he said, feed the flock of God. Essential and so important. We spent the whole week last, last session, last week on this. Feed the flock of God with the word of God. Feast on the word of God in order that we might be able to discern, in other words, separate good from evil and understand the differences, discern right from wrong, discern moral from immoral, and be able to, uh, to discern man's ways. And let's face it, we have our own ways, right? And God's ways are not, are not our ways. And, and Paul says, I need you to teach so that you can learn to discern God's ways from your ways. And then, of course, but the intention is to submit to God's ways and abandon our own ways, to submit to God. And he also, he said, 
I want you to discern false teachers and false teachings. And we're going to talk about that today. Be careful who you listen to. So I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll, we'll bring one to you. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, and here's what he writes. Paul wrote to Timothy in verses 3 through 5. Here's what he said. If any man teach otherwise and consent not or agree not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words. Wherefore cometh evil, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And he said, from such, withdraw yourself. And the Bible is full of warnings regarding false teachers. Why is that? Well, here's the reason, because many have existed in the past. They exist in the present. And many, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 4, many will deceive you. In only a couple of minutes, I was able to find 30 scriptural warnings against false teachers. It doesn't take long. The Bible's full of them. And today, as, as we look around and examine the world in which we live and the environment, even within Christianity, more and more false teachers abound through effective means of and use of mass media. These false teachers have ready access to more people very, very quickly than ever before. Well, how can you be discerning so that you're not sucked into that web of deception? And it is a web of deception because unless you're grounded on the truth of God's word, someone will set a hook. You begin to draw you in, and it's going to be very difficult to get away until you make that decision to study the word of God and prove what you're, you're, you're hearing against the word of God. So how can you distinguish a false teacher from a true one? Well, Paul gives an answer for us in verse, verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he said, He's proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, wherefore, whereof excuse me, committeth, cometh evil, envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. That's not a complete instruction regarding false teachers. But Paul's saying teachers that do not promote godliness, he said they're not from God. Notice that Paul mentions doctrine, teaching, sound biblical teaching. It's never to be focused on personal gain for the teacher or for the listener. It must be, as he's warning Timothy here, it must be centered on godliness and godliness comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 5, he said, again, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. He said, from such, withdraw yourself. He's speaking of those that use the name of Jesus as a means of personal profit or selfish gain including drawing men to themselves. We just read that in Acts 28, verse 30. 
is there will be some even among you that try to draw men to themselves rather than pointing to Jesus Christ. And you know, when you think about the cults, and there's many of them, have you ever wondered why they draw and trap so many people? Well, there's, there's a simple answer. They pray, P-R-E-Y, they pray on a knee. They don't pray for you. They pray on a knee. They offer their potential victim, and I'm calling them victims because being drawn into a snare, they, they offer their potential victim a solution to the need apart from the only one that can supply that need, and that is Jesus Christ. And perhaps try to convince people that they need to depend on another person or a church or some organization. You know, I want to share with you, I've shared with you before, my, my ministry friend in the Philippines, Pastor Burbs, a wonderful man of God. And, you know, we have a, an email connection, and it's been really sweet. But oftentimes he shares with me some of his concerns. And he, he sent me an email the other day, and he said, you know, there's many, many people in the Philippines that participate in Roman Catholicism, 78.8%. He knew the statistics. And he said, they're telling me, and I believe that he's fairly young in the faith, and he wants to learn so much. They're telling me that, that their church owns the Bible. Well, I don't see that in the Scriptures. That I have no business preaching the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. They mock me. They tell me I have no way, no, no authority in sharing the word of God. It belongs to the Roman Catholic Church, which is, in his words, the author of salvation and the only means of salvation. And I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church. This is an example that he shared with me. And he wants to know the truth. And I can say this, that a church never died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. Drawing people after an organization rather than pointing to Jesus, to me that sounds like a cult. Sometimes they prey on the need, financial needs of people and say, well, listen, if you send me X number of dollars, you know, it'll guarantee that Jesus will multiply it. Those that are lonely may be susceptible to the Jehovah's Witnesses that promise they will always have love and a sense of family within their community, but they won't tell you that love and a sense of community and family is only contingent upon playing upon their rules, by their rules. There are those that are ill. Oh, send money to this faith healer so that he would heal them of your illness. Those with uncertainty. Where's my life going? get taken advantage of by psychics or astrologers seeking direction and guidance. You see, for every need, there's a false teacher or cult that claims to meet that need. They generally prey upon people that are weak in the faith or perhaps don't know anything about the Christian faith or about Jesus Christ that will embrace what they're selling. But whatever we do, family, we must fall into alignment with God's word we have to diligently seek God in his word and judge what we hear according to, as Paul said, to godliness, not according to feeling or according to emotion or how we might think about it. God's word is our standard. What often happens is trials enter a person's life and they don't know how to handle them. And all they know is, I'm having a tough time. 
I don't have peace. And then along comes a false teacher called that promises a solution that might even mingle a little bit of the Bible to make it sound Christian. Now, Paul addressed that to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. He said, they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. A form of means it's just simply a, a shadow or an appearance. It appears godly, but it's not godly. But sadly, some po- folks, rather than turning away, they buy into it, not realizing there's nothing to do with growing in personal godliness. That's how false teachers gain momentum. It sounds good. It looks good. It smells good. So it must be good. But let me say this. You know, when you take an onion, for example, it doesn't really smell until you peel off the layers, does it? You start looking a little bit deeper, you realize there's something different here. That's why we must be students of the Word of God, peeling back the layers of what we hear so that we can identify it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul instructed Timothy, he said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When he's saying dividing the word of truth, he's talking about take the truth, examine it, separate the words, study the words, and understand what God is trying to speak. Study and teach and preach in such a way that receives God's approval rather than the approval of man. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul shares with us four ways that false teachers have promoted gain rather than godliness. And we're going to look at the first one today. The first way, teaching wrong content. If any man teach otherwise, he says, and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He mentions those that teach other than wholesome or sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying they're bad teachers because the content of their teaching was wrong. Bad doctrine, poor biblical instruction. We can't have that. No matter what anyone says, sound doctrine is essential. It's essential to godliness. Now here's some verses. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they, what? Teach no other doctrine. Very clear. 1 Timothy 4, 6. We're to be nourished up in the words of faith and what? Good doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Till I come, give attendance or heed to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Not done yet. 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you shall both save thyself and them that hear thee. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders that rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in what? The word and doctrine. You see, you see family, doctrine matters. Paul is saying it's essential for growth in godliness. Do you want to grow in godliness? I do. And if you do, what do we do? We study the word of God. We we examine the doctrine. It's essential. 
Because sound doctrine rightly represents the heart and character and, and nature of God. And Satan, he begins his attack through twisting and manipulation and misrepresenting God's word since Genesis. Remember, he, God gave a command to Adam and Eve, and he, he gave his own commentary on it, Satan did. And you know what? It was a bad commentary. And he led them astray. Wrong doctrine, bad doctrine leads to bad decisions and to wrong living. And I'd say, by and large, we live in a society that is anti-doctrine. There are, unfortunately, many churches that boast that they don't even get into doctrine. Emphasis, rather, on methodology or technique, an analysis, a sophisticated analysis of a target audience in order to design a church program that attacks, attacks, yeah, in a sense, that attracts those that they think they ought to attract. The certain segment of the population, a certain age group, whatever they might be. But you know what? If we, if we design programs to attract a certain population segment, guess what? Somebody's going to be left out. When Jesus ministered, he had only one target audience and one alone. Sinners. <laughs> that includes everybody. You know, Matthew 1.21 says, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That was his mission. He didn't develop a, a fancy strategy or a market plan or anything like that. He came to save sinners from their sin by laying down his own life on a cross. He bled and died, was buried and rose again on the third day so that those that believe that could have eternal life with him in heaven. Forgiveness of sin is essential. No one's going to heaven without their sins being forgiven. And there's only one means, and that is through the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. He died on our place, in our place and on our behalf. There's no other way. And you know, throughout history, every great church movement was not designed by establishing techniques or targets. Here's why it was fueled by praying people. Seeking the power of God's Holy Spirit. There was no technology early on. What did they do? They prayed. They sought the Lord. They shared the doctrine. They shared bread together, the, the communion table. So our prayer ought to be that God would lead us and guide us in bringing forth the life-changing gospel so that people will be saved. If you own a Bible, and you must, and if you read it, and you must, then you're exposed to sound doctrine. And the doctrine that a person would read and embrace will determine your behavior. Things like this. If we're reading and studying sound doctrine, it'll determine what you think about God. The truth, the truth about who he is. What you think about sin that it is wicked and evil in God's sight. What you think about salvation and how it's accomplished. And we know that as we read the Bible, as we read the Scriptures, we understand that there's only one way that God defines for a person to be saved. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shall be saved. There's no exception to that. Where do we find it? We find it in the Scriptures. Doctrine teaches about the grace of God. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? I am thankful every day for the grace of God. 
His favor he shows me even when I mess up. And believe me, I mess up plenty. But God's grace holds me and keeps me. His grace saved me. His grace keeps me moving in the right direction. Knowing that he still loves me in spite of what I've done or who I am. I'm his child. And he's my Abba. He's my father. And I wasn't born that way. I came to Christ through faith. And I became God's child. What we find happening today in a society that loosely holds biblical doctrine is a man-centered faith, subjective to opinion and relative to existing situations. Relative situational Christianity, you know what that is? It's not Christianity. It's not biblical. Because if we believe that truth is relative, then it changes with the times. And if it changed with the times, then, then God becomes the servant of man. For the relativist, God is not sovereign. God is not fair. God is not just. And man's purpose is not to live for God, but God is to live for the personal whims of man. That's what relativism is all about. You see, God doesn't exist for our personal happiness. For that person that lives for personal happiness lives a self-centered life and sees God far differently than we do, and that's as a genie in a bottle. And what it leads to is a situation like this. Say, for example, personal tragedy strikes. And that can be a trigger for a person to say and cry out to God, help, which we need to do. But because this person doesn't have a complete understanding of God, you might hear this, God, help, but... How could a loving God let this happen to me? God, if you do exist, if you really care, you'll take care of this. That was the cry of our nation during a national tragedy in September of 2001, wasn't it? Our nation cried out to God, help! And God is a present help in trouble, yet the churches were filled for a short season. Some folks came to, to faith, praise God. Our sister Ruby came to faith in that time. A tragedy brought her to trust in Jesus, but there's many, 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 many millions of people around the world that reject Jesus every single day. You know, the flaw in the argument against God is that they don't recognize him because man has been made sovereign in man's eyes. And man is here to be served by God. And that's what wrong doctrine teaches. It determines how we react when problems hit. Much of American theology is not only man-centered, as I said, but relative and subjective. And because of that, God is not viewed as having absolute say regarding truth and morality. Why are we in the mess we're in today? Where people walk around this, this country scratching their heads. I'm not sure what's right, what's wrong, what's in the middle. I have no idea. And we begin to embrace things that are so far removed from God. Why? Because we haven't focused on God as the source of truth, the sole truth, and the source of all morality. God has established the moral laws that flow from his perfect nature. So his moral laws are absolute. 
and they are absolutely perfect. The relativist man says there's no such thing as moral absolutes. It, it depends. That's dangerous. It depends on the situation. You know, if we read our Bibles, we don't find that. God doesn't waver on his truth. He never wavers on his word. He stands on it. Answers in Genesis provided some heartbreaking statistics. I'll call them that. And the study they did was a sampling of people between 20 and 30, or in their 20s and 30s. And keep in mind, those that they surveyed were church-going people. Here's what they said. Over 40% of them say they aren't born again. And I get that. There's not, the churches aren't full of those folks that are born again. There's people that yet haven't yet embraced Christ. But it's an opportunity to bring them to Christ, right? But that's one thing. But here's, here's where it gets a little bit more disturbing to me. 35% said they believe the Bible has errors in it or aren't sure if it contains errors. 45% said their Sunday school teachers didn't teach them how to understand or defend their faith. 45% being that same-sex attractions and behavior, same-sex behaviors, excuse me, it's not a sin. Or didn't know if it was or wasn't. 20% believe that books other than the Bible are inspired by God. I haven't found another yet. Another book that is inspired by God. And here's a very, very common one throughout society. Some believers and unbelievers alike. 65% believe that being a good person will get a person to heaven. Where's this come from? Is it simply a matter of a person just choosing to be rebellious and stubborn? Well, no. I don't think so. The reason that the voice of the world is louder than the voices that they hear from the pulpits. What do I mean? I mean that if we preach another gospel, something other than what God has given us, if we fail to teach line upon line, if we fail to open up the God, God's word, if we don't attend to sound doctrine, if we try to attract people by cheapening the word of God, then we reap what we sow. And one day, those that have been tainted in some cases, by bad or incorrect teaching, you know what? They're going to be the leaders of the churches. That's heartbreaking to me. You see, our voices, those that stand for truth, those that embrace the word of God as God's absolute truth, that God establishes the standards for truth and morality, if we embrace those things, What's going to happen? Hearers will be converted by the gospel. And those that know the Lord will be strengthened and equipped to bring the gospel to the lost. This is what's needful. We can't bring stories to the lost. A story doesn't save a person. Jesus saves. And the power of salvation is in the gospel. Notice in... 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. 
Paul brings out two essentials that measure wholesome or healthy doctrine. First, sound doctrine always centers on Jesus Christ. Always. It always points to the centrality of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death upon the cross. We see Jesus Christ is Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We serve God, and we serve God by serving each other too. We also see, according to sound doctrine, that Jesus Christ is all in all. Colossians 3.11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. But Christ is all and in all. The Scriptures teach us about Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But for us, we know it's the power of God unto salvation. The Word of God describes Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24, But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where else are we going to find that in the world other than through Christ and in his precious word? Colossians 1.27 describes our hope, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where else can we have hope in this world? You see, if we believe that this is what it's all about, the here and now, this planet Earth, our life here on Earth, and then it ends... To me, that's no source of hope. It means my life begins and ends at a certain point, done. Done deal. There's those that teach that. They teach and preach that one should die here just annihilated, never to be remembered again. But you know what? I have a future and I have a hope well beyond this world. A glorious eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ because of what he has done on my behalf in laying down his life. Colossians 1.28 shares with the goal of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. And you see, the supremacy and centrality of Jesus must be declared. If it's the Holy Spirit's job to declare Jesus Christ to people and point them to Christ, shouldn't that be ours as well? The servant is not greater than his master. Paul the Apostle's goal was that Christ would be exalted. In Philippians 1, verse 20, here's what he said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. No matter what, his heart was that Jesus would be exalted in his life, even through his death. Shouldn't that be our goal as well? The second essential Paul brings forth as a measure of sound doctrine is this. Sound doctrine conforms us to godliness. In other words, it's not subjective. It's not relative. It's not God is whoever you want him to be. 
Godliness is a central theme in the pastoral epistles. All about Jesus. Godliness is mentioned 11 times in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. 11 times. And here's how the Holy Spirit brings it out, just to name a few. As enabling us to live peaceful and quiet lives. 1 Timothy 2 verse 2. To pray for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The Holy Spirit brings it out in, as we need to exercise our lives in verse, 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather to godliness. In other words, as we read the scriptures, allow the scriptures to read you. And then as the scriptures read you, what happens? The Spirit of God ministers to us and speaks to us and changes us and conforms us more closely into the image of Jesus Christ. That's exercising a godliness. Paul would say this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. People find godliness, or excuse me, contentment and gain in many, many ways apart from God. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And what that means is that we need to surrender these beings, as difficult as it is sometimes, to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. And when we do that, we grow in godliness and we establish a contentment because I am right where God wants me to be. And God calls that great gain. So much for prosperity doctrine. I want the kind of gain that the Bible describes. And when I'm not walking in godliness, you know, I, I don't have that contentment, do I? And therefore, I don't have that kind of gain he's speaking of. But the two coupled together, godliness bringing us contentment, brings us great gain. Being content with what God is doing in our lives. Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. You see, the knowledge of the truth is godliness and brings us into that place and pattern of godliness. Well, what then is godliness if it's so important? Well, it is important. And here, here's what this means. Godliness is conduct pleasing to God. Conduct pleasing to God. Obedience. Worship, which is pleasing to God. Worship that comes right from our hearts is an, an act of praising God for who He is. Our lives as an act of of worship. Worship isn't simply song. It's living a life that's pleasing to God. Things like sharing the word of God with someone or bringing a, a, a loving glance or a word to somebody that's in such need, that's hurting. Bringing forth the gospel. The way we treat others. You know, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to be kind and merciful and when we get mistreated. It's not easy. But you know, I, I think of Jesus. What did he do? I mean, he was on trial. And he stood silent before his accusers. I mean, I got a tough time doing that. 
I got to tell you, it's hard. Godliness means all the attributes of God as we see in Jesus Christ. We see Jesus in the scriptures cover to cover. We read the Gospels and we see how he ministered, how he treated people, how he loved on them, how he spoke the truth to them, never backed off of the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 9, he said to Philip, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen my Father. In other words, we see all the attributes of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And we learn of the person of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. The Word of God cannot be minimized in our lives. There is no substitute for it. There is no exception to it. So those are two key measures of sound doctrine, the centrality of Jesus Christ in in teaching godliness. And if either of those are missing, then doctrine is not sound, and it has been compromised. So what we've learned today, there are false teachers in the world There's lots of them. We were warned against that. Paul warned the church at Ephesus. We've learned how to identify them, at least in the first way, through their doctrine. And we're going to talk about some more next week in part two. But the thing is that I think is so very important for us. You know, we walk away with, yes, we've learned some truth. We learned the importance of doctrine. We learned the importance of, of reading the Word of God and clinging to the Word of God, examining what we hear against the Word of God, allowing God to, to take that Word and bring it into our hearts. But the most important thing is the message of the Bible is God's love for us. His love that never changes. And it's His love for us that sent His Son Jesus to the cross to die a brutal death to suffer, to be buried and, and risen again by God on the third day. And that's how, that's how a person comes to Christ, by believing in that. Believing in the mission of Jesus that I shared earlier. He came to save his people from their sins. So that brings up a great question, a, a very big question. Have your sins been forgiven. And listen, I'm not talking about us forgiving another person for what they have done or whatever the reason might be. We're to forgive. But the forgiveness that I'm talking about is the forgiveness of our sin from God himself. Because every sin that we commit is an offense to him. And he is the only one that can provide that relief and the forgiveness that we need. And it's so wonderful to know that his forgiveness is so complete. If you come to Christ and say, God, I trust in you, forgive me of my sin, you can be assured if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all unright living. All the things, all the offenses that you've accumulated from the day that you first sinned until the time you you die. Past, present, 
in future. That is how complete his forgiveness is. In fact, he tells us in the word of God, he says, your sin and your iniquity I will remember no more. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I will remove your transgressions from you. And if you understand that picture, you realize the east never catches up with the west. That's how far, how complete, how beautiful the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is. And not only that, I think to top it all off, yes, we're forgiven, we're set free from the bondage of sin, but we're set free from the bondage of death. And yeah, this physical body's going to die one day. That's the truth. But you know what? The spirit within me is going to live forever. My soul will live to get forever in heaven with Jesus. I'm not going to be simply as a bucket of ashes buried in the ground. My spirit will live on forever. The real me, the part of me that will exist throughout eternity, will be in heaven with Jesus. And if I was disrespectful, I said, said what I said about the ashes in the ground, forgive me, I wasn't trying to be rude or disrespectful. But for some, that's where life ends. And I know that my life doesn't end there because I belong to Jesus. And when I look at my own life, I think, why? Why would he, he purchase this with his blood? I'm damaged goods. But he loves me just the same. And he loves you just the same. And his heart is to save you. If his heart is to save you, God the creator, God almighty wants to save you from your sin and bring you to heaven one day. When you think about that, the magnitude of that statement, it's, that's God. He loves me enough to allow me the privilege to spend eternity with him. I think, why wouldn't a person want that? An eternity that is so beautiful and perfect. There's no sin in heaven. There's no pain in heaven. There's no sorrow in heaven. There's no hurt in heaven. There's no more death in heaven. Why wouldn't I want that? Then again, on the other, on the other side of this is, is those that have rejected Jesus. They'll live for eternity also. But that's not an eternity I would want anybody to ever, ever live in and spend their, their rest of the eternity. Their hell is a horrible place. It's a horrible place, a place of torment. It's a place of pain. And contrast that to what God promises. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. And life in hell would be a life of, I can't even describe it completely, nor do I want to dwell on it. But it's not a good place. It's a horrible place. And I imagine one of the greatest things that those that are there deal with is, is knowing that they were given an opportunity to make it different. An invitation extended for salvation, and, and they said, no, I don't want that. I'm not interested in Jesus. And Jesus would say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's a sad statement. 
an eternity of regret. Can you imagine that? You know, we regret things we don't do or things we do. But can you imagine eternity in a horrible place of regret thinking this could have been so different? And I said no to the one that just wanted to save me. That's all he wants. Would you say yes to him? And if you want to say yes to him, then please pray with me. Lord, I come to you and I acknowledge that I'm, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've done some terrible things in my life. I've turned my back on you. I've cursed your name. I've mistreated people. You know it all. And you love me. And Lord, I want it to be different. So I bring my life to you now, my heart to you. I confess my sin and ask you, God, please, please forgive me. And I trust that as I ask those words, I speak those words, you point me to your son Jesus who died for the very things I just brought before you. And his blood, I believe, has just cleansed me of all of my sin. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Please, be my Lord. I want to obey you and help me to do so. Help me turn from the things that are displeasing to you and turn to you 100% of the time and help me in those times when I fail. I believe that you are God the Son and the Son of God who came, laid his life down on a cross, died and was buried and rose again on the third day so that I may have eternal life with you forever. I love you and I thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord. Be glorified in my life and help me to tell others about you and what you've just done in my life, Lord. And help me to learn of you by studying your word and reading your word and embracing those things which are good. And you are good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.